Subspace Transmission Subspace Transmissions What's up you fucking sons of bitches? Fucking fucking get out of the car! Get out of the car! Yo, this is yo, a car yo, jacket! Yo, 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 yo. Give me all your money! Give me all your money, you motherfucker! <laughs> um Hey, this is Subspace Transmission. This yeah. is the uh, part of the show where we uh, do a highway robbery of you. Hmm. Motherfucker. I love Give that. All your money, motherfucker. <laughs> get that, get that scribble. Mask up, mask up. <laughs> all that money, motherfucker. Um, so, uh, if you uh, don't know, uh, we just did uh, like uh, th- four, three and a half, four hours on mm-hmm. fucking uh, Star Trek: First Contact. Yeah, a pretty, pretty wonderful Star Trek film. And uh, now this is the part where we talk about everything you need to know about this film. So, production <laughs> details, motherfucker. All the behind the scenes action. Oh, we love that. All right. So here's the BTS, and I'm not talking about the K-pop band. You get me? <laughs> so. <clears throat> start with the development of the film. So with uh, the success of Star Trek Generations and its worldwide gross of $120 million of a $35 million budget, actually $40 million, Mm. uh, Paramount Pictures uh, development executives approached producer Rick Berman in February of 1995 to ready the next installment in the Star Trek franchise. During an impromptu meeting with writers Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga, Berman revealed his interest in a time travel story. Uh, the more Braga writing team, however, wanted to tell a story focusing on the Borg. Uh, Moore recalled the first meeting, saying, quote, We were standing outside on the Heart Building steps. Rick had just come back from that studio meeting and stopped us, and he said, I really want you guys to think about it. I want to do a time travel piece. Brandon and I added, We want to do something with the Borg. And right on the spot, we said, Maybe we can do both, the Borg <laughs> and time travel. So uh, brainstorming sessions began between the writers, producers, day jobs on DS9 and Voyager. Again, Moore recalled, we started talking, uh, sorry, quote, we started talking about the places and times that had been done on screen and had not been done on screen. Certain things were crossed off because they would be a little too hokey. We could go to the Roman Empire, which would be cool in a lot of ways. But Mm -hmm. Picard in a toga? You don't want that. Put him in a spacesuit. No, we want him in a toga. No, honestly, he would fuck in a toga. That would be so cool. Yeah. yeah, like fucking go back to, yeah, do some fucking I Claudia shit with him. Yeah, I mean, really, like when they always utilize like time travel, it's always to fucking Nazi Germany or some yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, it's always to uh, uh, maximum 150 years back in the past from now. That's it. That's it. Yeah. It's like, it's uh, either like 18th, the current 19th day at or the time. 20th century. Yeah, that's the, it. That's the, all you got. Either the current day in which like the, the series is being filmed, mm-hmm. or like uh, yeah, Nazi Germany. Yeah, lots of <laughs> lots of Nazis. Um, <clears throat> so uh, though other time periods in history, including the American Civil War, were suggested, eventually the Italian Renaissance time period was uh, agreed upon. Oh, but they decided to use that for a Pinocchio, for the newest Pinocchio movie. Right, right. <laughs> uh, an early story draft entitled, and I'm not kidding here, Star Trek Renaissance that expanded on this idea, which like, yes and no. Like, big no, but also big yes. The, the problem is, I don't think it would be a good official Star Trek film. As something like making fun of Star Trek in a way, though, or something, it could be great. They kind um, of had that, though, with Voyager. Remember, they have, like, oh, uh, uh, Janeway uh, is friends with uh, Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they have... 
that's the thing with Voyager is like, I feel like they ran out of ideas so quickly, like during maybe the third season or something. Mm-hmm. They're like, thereafter, at least a good third of the episodes are holodeck episodes. Yeah. That are all just like weird fantasy time pieces. Mm-hmm. I'm like, eh, okay. <laughs> yeah, fine. Do we really need to go to the Irish town twice, Fairhaven? Twice? Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Like, they're they spend a lot of time uh, being kind of isolated, and yeah, I, I get that. But like, setting all the stories in the holodeck is, I don't know, kind of. There's so many things you can do with the holodeck. It's well, that's point, why, like, uh, Tarantino, he, his, his he said that his Star Trek movie was going to take entirely take, on a holodeck. Yeah, which is like wild to me. So, yeah, which is like unhinged, totally unhinged, like um. It's like, okay, there's holodeck episodes, and then there's, like, holodeck episodes. <laughs> like, like, literally, all I'm imagining is, like, basically, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and at the very end, Brad Pitt's, like, Archway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's the entire that's, that's film. Like, and, like, and then, like, for some reason, there's, like, a Bullion or a Klingon. Yeah, yeah. As, like, as, like, as, as, like, a background character, and you're like, yeah. wait a minute. Oh, or, or just Leonardo DiCaprio just has Spock ears. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's the that's only it. difference in the entire <laughs> fucking film. Um, so, uh, according to Moore, the story for Star Trek Renaissance would have found Picard and company. Uh, oh, shoot. My thing moved. Um, uh, searching history for a group of time traveling boards. Happening upon a Renaissance village, the crew would hear stories about strange creatures taking over neighboring villages. Uh, the producers realized that the time period was expensive to realize on screen, with uh, audience knowledge and identification with that period very low, and pulling very low. So mm-hmm. I guess the uh, you know, study grouped that, and they were like, no. Yeah, not going to happen. Mm-mm. It's easier if we just build a bunch of weird shanty towns out of aluminum siding. Right, right. Ultimately, <laughs> a time period after modern history was selected, the birth of the Federation. Uh, according to Brandon Bragg, a quote, The one image that I brought to the table is the image of the Vulcans coming out of a ship. I wanted to see the birth of Star Trek. We ended up coming back to that moment. That, to me, is what made the time travel story fresh. We get to see what happens when humans shook hands with the first aliens. I agree with that entirely. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it was a great idea. I'm I'm on record. I hate time travel shit for the most part. There yeah. are some good Star Trek properties and things that have done time travel very well. Yeah. Still not a fan of it. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the better uh, instances, and I think it is basically because it is set during First Contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get to see First Contact through the view of characters we're very familiar, comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I get that. You know? Yeah. It's not a perfect film. There's a lot of plot holes in getting there. And especially getting back from Earth. But, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like, <clears throat> I feel like getting back to places, especially if you have, like, a limitless energy supply, past warp speed, it, it makes sense that you could do time travel to the future, like, super easily because mm-hmm. you could just keep traveling at the speed of light. Yeah. For, you know, hundreds of years and, like, just do a big ring around a place, travel, you know, in circles for that long. Do a Superman. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you'd have to do it at the exact speed of light because therein you would feel time in the thing. Because once you go into subspace, you go out of time space, yeah. right? And so, and subspace is achieved in warp beyond light speed. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas in Lightspeed, you could just travel forever and basically be time traveling into the future. Hmm. Because, yeah, because of the how relative, rel- relativity works. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, a revised storyline was constructed, this time called Star Trek Resurrection. Utilizing elements laid into place by Gene Roddenberry's original concepts for the Star Trek universe and Star Trek the original series second season episode Metamorphosis, Resurrection closely resembled the final film. In the story, the Borg attack Zephram Cochran's Montana laboratory, severely injuring the scientist. With Dr. Crusher fighting to save Cochran's life, Captain Picard assumes his place in history, rallying a town around reconstructing the damaged warpship. I actually kind of like this idea, but it's, but it's like, it it's, breaks time too much. Yeah. It's also basically uh, the DS9 episode, where it, the Bell Wright episode. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah, the Bell Wright episode, and also the, the episode where he's the writer. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's several episodes. Um, yeah, so it's like, eh, I can see that. But. Uh, so as the action unfolded, Picard would have become romantically involved with a local photographer and x-ray technician named Ruby, who helps the captain reconstruct a key element of the ship. Aboard the Enterprise, Commander Riker would be engaged in combat with invading Borg drones. The Borg in Resurrection would remain faceless automatons. Mm. Interesting. So I, I kind of like those ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think those would have made uh, compelling, interesting films. I am glad they kept original Zephram Cochran, though, and especially uh, got um, James, um, well, fucking, oh, what's his name? Cr- not Cromwell. What, God damn it. What's the guy's name? Zephram Cochran. James Cromwell. J- yeah, James Cromwell. Yeah. Oh, I, I was right. <laughs> his name is James Cromwell. James, God damn it. His name's not James Cromwell. Yeah. It's that, James Cromwell. That'll do, pig. Yeah. Um, so, uh, with a draft of resurrection sent to the studio executives, generally positive notes were returned. However, one Paramount executive pointed out the weakness of the Borg as being they were, quote, basically zombies. Yeah. Yeah. Space zombies. That's the point. That's been the whole point of them since the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why everyone likes the Borg. Like, come yeah. on, guy. Get, get with the fucking program. They were really on the whole everything is zombies kick before everybody else. Like They certainly were. Like, you know, we've... Now we have like, well, before, like, you know, like, uh, maybe like five years ago, like every movie was a fucking zombie movie. I did hate that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, back in 96, fucking nothing was a zombie. Exactly. Like we, you know, we had a couple zombie movies here and there. Yeah. But like, it wasn't like an everything is zombies yeah. that we have. <laughs> so yeah, there was no market saturation of zombies. So who, th- who the fuck cares if they're based? Come on, guys. Yeah. So. Uh, despite the Borg's inception as a faceless swarm, the writers chose to incorporate a figurehead into the collective. The Borg Queen was created, a logical extension of the insect-like qualities incorporated in the Borg's characterization. Having read the early script pages, too, Patrick Stewart, however, was dissatisfied with the film. Stewart suggested that the Picard and Riker stories be switched, <laughs> as you were uh, saying in, in the other episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he Picard decided he needed to be the action hero. Yep. Thus, the focus of the film was transferred to the action aboard the Enterprise with a B story on the planet's surface featuring Riker. Elements like Ruby the photographer and an injured Cochrane were ultimately scrapped, as was any prospect of a love affair for Picard. Ronald D. Moore described the thought process in the following, quote, Let's get simple. Bring Cochrane into the story. Let's make him an interesting fellow, and it could say something about the birth of the Federation. The future that Roddenberry envisioned is born out of this very flawed man who is not larger than life, but an ordinary flawed human being. Mm-hmm. True, except James Cromwell is larger than life. He's a very big human being. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Yeah. And also he wears that hat that Zephram Cochran wears in real he life. He does. He Also, <laughs> I saw him like taking pictures with people at a fan convention. He was dressed exactly like Zephram Cochran. Yeah. 
I'm like, does he just, is that what he just does? Or like, was he dressed like specifically as I mean, he did say this is the closest to his real life character. That's and I believe, and I believe it. Like, you know, um, Nicolas Cage said like the closest character he's ever played is the character in Joe. Which I don't know if you saw. I it, haven't seen Joe. It's, it's basically where he's like this cool ass fucking lumberjack, which That's is like, cool. you are a fucking liar, Nick yeah. Cage. That is, you no, are he's, not. He's a weird, I mean, he was, I mean, he's just always on cocaine. Is the thing. Yeah. So it's like. But this is like, but like the character he plays in Joe is like this like humble lumberjack who like, who mentors a young boy and yeah. like, and, and he's cool with all, all the people everywhere. And I'm pretty sure the, the person he's most like that he's played is Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, so. more, yeah. Yeah. I think he's most like the vampire's kiss guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so with the adjustment in the structure of the film, Berman suggested the addition of a holodeck sequence, the quote cocktail party. Mm-hmm. Uh, in August 1995, an early draft of the script, still titled Resurrection, was circulated to key members of the production staff, headed by Martin Hornstein and Peter Lawrenson. Using this script, the production heads would budget the film, ultimately falling into the range of $45 million. <laughs> key positions were filled as pre-production began, with several members of the cast volunteering for the director's chair. Jonathan Frakes won out. Who do you think the others were? I'm not sure they can say, but... I imagine LeVar Burton had done several episodes mm. at this point. Hmm. Who else? I read that they had some big name directors attached to it initially. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have that here. But yeah. So uh, according to Frakes, the film was offered to A-list directors who had little interest in the franchise. As a result, he was offered the job, quote, a month later than would have been ideal. Uh, Frakes appointed Jerry Fleck, a veteran of Star Trek TNG, as first assistant director, and John W. Wheeler as editor. Veteran costume designer Deborah Everton was assigned the task of creating an all-non-Starfleet clothing, plus redesigning the Borg with Michael Westmore, mm. uh, who did like all of the effects on TNG and DS9, mm-hmm. Voyager, and Enterprise. Uh, Everton's credits at the time included The Abyss and The X-Files TV series. Hmm. Uh, she later costumed Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica, which is rad. Hmm. Uh, Robert Blackman returned to once again redesign the Starfleet uniforms, this time making them fit everybody. Um, <clears throat> and also to uh, complement Jonathan Frake's darker color palette hmm. and stand up better to big screen scrutiny. I do like the uh, do like all the stuff in this. Yeah, the, I mean the production elements are pretty fantastic. So, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about the new Enterprise that they made for this. Upon delivery of the script to production designer Herman Zimmerman, who had worked on like fucking every Star Trek everything at this point, the art department's first task was the creation of the new Enterprise E. Having been retained from his work on Generations, illustrator John Eaves operated in conjunction with Zimmerman to develop the E. Based upon direction by Berman and the writers, according to Ronald E. Moore, quote, we described the newer Enterprise in some detail. We said we want a sleeker look, something with uh, more of a muscular, almost warship kind of look to it. I, 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 that is very obvious, yeah. It does look like a scarier ship. It, it, it's more imposing. It definitely looks more like, yeah, it's, it's supposed to fuck shit up. Yeah. It's less of a hotel, more of a fuck you up machine. And that's, but that's, a, that's why I like 
the Enterprise D because it looks like how like the Federation wants to present itself to yeah, new worlds. Big, yeah, big like accommodating hotel. Yeah, like something that looks friendly. Yeah. And and like uh the Enterprise E looks like a flexing like bicep yeah, that like is about to fuck some shit it's up. It's not nearly as round. There's a lot more edges. Yeah, there's lots of edges. There's lots of really mean crevices <laughs> in it and it just looks and, like and it's like the color palette's very like sleek and very like gray, mm-hmm. silver and blue whereas like there's so many colors on the Enterprise D like mm-hmm. especially with the nacelles and everything. It's like a nice warm red and blue and kind of a warm gray. Mm-hmm. Like a brownish gray. So According to uh, the illustrator, Eves, the process began by reviewing what came before, specifically Bill George's USS Excelsior from Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Over 20 or 30 sketches, the designer honed the look of the ship into an even sleeker design, rotating the oval-shaped saucer of the Enterprise-D to fill the concept. By October 95, Eves and Zimmerman proceeded with their design uh, with approval from Rick Berman. Featuring the same basic shape that appears in the finished film, this version of the Enterprise-E including movable warp pylons recalling the starship USS Voyager. Mm. Uh, showing a dorsal view sketch to a member of the production staff, Eves received negative feedback that compared the ship to a chicken. Quote, From the moment he said that, the design was cursed. <laughs> Every time I looked at it, I saw not a starship, but a chicken in a pan. Sadly, <laughs> Herman saw it too. So we had to... Pardon the pun. Scratch that one. Whoa. Chicken scratch. Did it to him. Uh, Over the next several months, the ship was again refined in sketches dated January 96. The Enterprise E had finally been settled upon. Now distinguished by backswept engine pylons, the ship was almost ready to be constructed. Eves described the following. uh, No, we'll skip that. Uh, With several days of sketching alternatives behind him, Eves returned to his original design to focus on the smaller details that allowed Sternbach to complete his plans. By the spring of 96, the ship's blueprints were turned over to Industrial Light and Magic's model building department under John Goodson. Not John Goodman, Mm. but his son, John Goodson. Oh, yeah, because he's a good son. Yeah. Uh, The 10-foot model, 10-fucking-feet model, was fabricated under extreme time constraint, about half a normal time period with photographs of rooms and people inserted into the ship's windows. A computer-generated model was also constructed with almost indistinguishable differences between the two. Um, we won't go too far into the interiors. Uh, they were just redone by Herman Zimmerman to look real borgy. Yeah. The only thing I, like, one of the, well, I don't know, I'm not really a big fan of the bridge, for one. No, the bridge, I mean, the bridge was redone from the previous film, mm-hmm. uh, which was redone, I think, from the Excelsior yeah. originally or something. And so, like, yeah, there's a lot of, like, it, it's darker. But at the same time, like, we pretty much only see the bridge, like, in, like, Crisis or, mm-hmm. like, Red Alert, this entire film. So. And I also don't like um, uh, Riker's tiny little table that he has. He has, like, a little... Sc- I love that. <laughs> he has a weird little schoolboy no, out- uh, thing. No, it's really cool. The little, yeah... <laughs> No, no, I like. It looks like he's about to give be given homework or something, and just do it at this little table. Riker's a good boy. Yeah, but it is funny because he does look like he's hulking over this tiny little table. Yeah, it's really cool. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why you'd be hating. 
It's like, yeah. It's, if, it's, if my boy wants a tiny little table, he's a non-toxic. It, it looks let, like it looks. Let my boy have a tiny. It looks little like table. the. It looks like the top will flip up, and there's just a bunch of crayons inside. Yeah, probably. He likes. <laughs> he likes drawing and coloring. He's a good boy. He's, he's a good yeah. rainbow boy. Yeah, he has his multiplication tables in there. Yeah. Yeah. He just, he just has a. Is a coloring book that uh, just says. Uh, Girls of Risa. And it's just like all the pages are stuck together. Yeah. With crayon. With crayon. With crayon. With crayon. Yeah. Wink. 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 But yeah, otherwise I think like the like I feel like the um the uh bridge looks more kind of like the Enterprise bridge. Yeah. Like for, you know, like um Enterprise Enterprise. Oh yeah. Um so uh, a bunch of this stuff for the bridge were actually uh taken from the Voyager bridge. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, also, the Voyager cargo bay was used, uh, as well as the Enterprise weapons locker, apparently, they used in here. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, that, that, is, that did have a lot of guns in it. <laughs> uh, here's an interesting fact. Uh, for the first time in a Star Trek film, a transporter room is not featured at all. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, yeah it's, it, like it's only referenced, but they, we don't see a single transporter room, and everything is done from the planet side yeah. of, of the transporting. That's super interesting. Yeah. All righty, now uh, let's talk mm-hmm. about the Borg. The Borg. The Borg. Uh, so, assigned to refresh the Borg makeup that had previously consisted of simple pale faces and cobbled-together bodysuits, Deborah Everton and King Michael Westmore cooperated with Herman Zimmerman and his team to create something new. As late as January of 96, uh, pages of Borg designs flowed from the art department, with contributions uh, from Alex Delgado of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Mm. Working for Disney, in addition to Star Trek, Delgado often worked on his time off, uh, generating complex and sometimes grotesque images of the Borg, heavily influenced by insect life and ancient Egyptian culture. Well, many of Delgado's mm. ideas, including exposed organs and obelisk-shaped vessels, were ultimately rejected. Much of his work was integrated into Everton's and uh, Westmore's final designs. Uh, according to Westmore, quote, I wanted it to look like they were borgified from the inside out rather than the outside in. It was very difficult. We didn't want somebody to come along and say, oh, that looks like alien. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what resulted were eight Borg bodysuits that would be combined with individually molded pieces to be swapped into various configurations representing different drones. Quote, instead of having an entire helmet, now we have these individual pieces that are on the head. So you get this bald look. That way the pieces look like they're uh, clamped into the head individually instead of being a full cap that pulls over the top, said Westmore. Electronics built into the Borg suits often included blinking lights that spelled out production members' names in Morse code, which I think is really fun. Yeah. Uh, makeup effects were achieved by airbrushing tiny wires that would appear to be just below the surface of the Borg's skin. A wide variety of human and alien drones were created, including Klingons, Cardassians, and Romulans, though the latter two never appear in the theatrical cut. Hmm. Uh, with days remaining, or sorry, with days beginning as early as 2 a.m. for the makeup department, uh, took them uh, at least 30 minutes to get each of the eight Borg actors into their costumes, the entire department, and another five hours to apply makeup, and 90 minutes to remove makeup at the end of the day. Fuck. (laughs) According to Westmore, quote, As they bettered their prep times, they were using two tubes, and then they were using three tubes, and then they were sticking tubes in the ears and up the nose, 
and we were using a very gooey caramel coloring, maybe using a little bit of it. But by the time we got to the end of the movie, we had the stuff dripping down the side of their faces. It looked like they were leaking oil. So at the very end, they were more ferocious. <laughs> Which, I mean, they, as, as I said in their review of this, like, they looked fucking wet. Like, the Borg looks they so did. wet in this film, and it's, like, creepy and awesome. Well, it makes sense if it's 89 degrees where they usually are. Yeah. They're probably sweating. Oh, I, I would love that. I would love if room temperature was 89 degrees. Like, you know I keep my mouth toasty. <laughs> yeah. I would keep it toastier if, like, electricity was free. Oh, yeah. Uh, but no. And, and no, I, yeah, I read, like, every all the Borg lost a ton of weight. Yeah, just, I bet in those costumes. Yeah, just, like, moving with all the lights and um, uh, and the the bulk of the suits. Yeah, just like, water weights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I used to be in theater, and I actually knew a guy who lost 70 pounds Jesus. doing in, in a month. Wow. Uh, yeah, because... I need he, to do that shit. He was playing, like, basically like a Barney-type character in a play. Mm. So he was wearing this giant dinosaur suit for fucking, you know, five to eight hours a day yeah. in front of stage lights, you know, five to seven days a week for a month. I have heard, like, the Disney people, like, you know, the, the characters at Disney, they have, like, miniature fans inside oh yeah yeah. which they i you know you must have to because oh, oh, that otherwise must... in the heat of fucking orlando that would kill you yeah like i can't imagine how they probably did it before mm-hmm. <laughs> this like they, they were able to like make fans small enough to be put inside those things mm-hmm. and it, yeah it just seems like it's torture like I, I can only imagine like the people inside of those you know when they're hugging kids and just like you know and like acting goofy they're just like there's just like this miserable husk of a human being inside. Just. Oh, absolutely! No, it's like <laughs> yeah, you're like the the person providing like a magical joyous experience to your child is like the most miserable, stoned, and hungover low wage worker, fucking just like baking in the heat of an Orlando sun. Yeah, undergoing like that, you know what those uh the box. You know yeah. that they have in prisons. You know where they put you out in the sun. Oh you know? yeah, yeah. 100%. <laughs> it's just like it's like they're basic. It's basically um, a crime against, like a uh, that's banned from the Geneva Convention. Yeah, absolutely. well, <laughs> so it's still illegal in America. Yeah, yeah, it's still no. illegal in America. Yeah. yeah, you know we never signed into that. So and and those you know those people aren't making more than fifteen dollars an hour too. Oh no, that's what I'm saying. They're they're like low they're low to minimum wage workers. Yeah. Well. So like yeah. God, that's that's so sad. We need to. Fucking tear Disney down. <laughs> oh, there's some interesting story. You can uh, l- look up like uh, uh, Disney park deaths and stuff online. There's some <laughs> crazy stories of cat. Like uh, one of my least favorite things I ever read was uh, there was a guy playing Pluto that like uh, one of his ears got stuck in the axle of uh, of like one of the trucks or something, and it like, pulled his head under and crushed his head. Jesus like, Christ! In front of a bunch of children. Oh and, my like, God. And they had like, and they said it was like the grimmest, craziest scene ever because you had like fucking like Goofy standing over the dead body of Pluto telling people to get away and not look away. <laughs> That's just like. Well, amazing. I'm having nightmares for the rest of my life. Yeah, there's like probably like a dozen kids that like need unlimited therapy from Disney now. God, I hope so. I hope they got it. Yeah, it was, was that on Defunct Land? No, it wasn't. It was uh, It was on a. Th- I found it through a thread on Reddit mm. a long time ago. I'll see if I can find it and send it to you because it's yeah. wild shit, man. Yeah, I know. Like Defunct Land has like some some videos on Disney deaths, like like oh. a kid that was like sucked under um like a ride and got stuck under it in the. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. 
<laughs> like that to happen to my dick, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, stuck get, under a roller coaster. But I'd rather get my dick stuck in many, if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, st- stick my biggie in that mini, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, so, as the leader of the Horde of Eight, Alex Krieg's Borg Queen costume was extra unique. A tight-fitting one-piece bodysuit combined with a large headpiece and integrated lighting systems. The first of the Queen's costumes was built out of hard rubber. After the first of Krieg's 10-day shoot, uh, the actress suffered from blisters raised by the tight rubber. A second... <laughs> Poor woman. Yeah, soft foam suit was ca- fabricated overnight. Despite the relative comfort of the new suit, Krieg was still required to wear painful silver contact lenses that could be worn for only four minutes at a time. According to Jerry Fleck, the actress never complained. Mm. Borg vessels were handled by John Eaves based upon script pages, referring to a... Uh, tetragon or rectangular shaped vessel eves generated drawings in 96 uh, labeled borg tetragon (laughs) unable to reuse the borg cube built for the television series created out of inexpensive pieces from model kits a new cube had to be designed described by eves as nonsensical a distinctly new surface was designed distinguished by interlocking shapes and angles with a hidden hatchway for eves borg sphere Intricate details of ILM's Borg cube model were achieved through the use of recycled paper clips. <laughs> That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Um, so besides several backgrounds and stunt performers who cha- uh, changed into Borg, there were also a few Borg mannequins in the set. One of these mannequins was sold off uh, in auction on eBay a few years ago. Hmm. That'd be a cool thing to have. Yeah. Yeah, just like a Borg with maybe one of those fucking static things behind his head or something. Yeah, probably. Uh, you know it was sold for sex purposes. You're not wrong. <laughs> and they're like, oh, this is the Borg Queen. Someone stuck their dick in it. Oh, well. <laughs> no, I think they got her to like put a dick on it hmm. so they could ride that Borg. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some production. In the spring of 1996, newly recruited director Jonathan Frakes and producer Rick Berman cast their three guest stars. Uh, Two-time Academy Award winner Tom Hanks, an admitted Trekkie, was slated to play Zephram Cochran, but he was busy with his directorial debut. Uh, The role went to James Cromwell, a veteran of Star Trek The Next Generation and DS9. Mm Mm-hmm an Oscar nominee for his role in 1995's Babe. Oh. According to Jonathan Frakes, quote, in spite of having been nominated for an Academy Award, he actually came in and read for the part, and he nailed it. He left Berman and me with our jaws in our laps. So they sucked each other's dicks? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cromwell later reprised his role as Cochran in the Star Trek Enterprise first season episode Broken Bow. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the first episode, right? Yeah. For the role of Lily, uh, Frake's immediate inclination after reading the script was to cast actress CCH Pound. <laughs> it's Alfre Woodard. CCH Pounder, an Oscar nominee herself and multiple Emmy Award winner. Okay, it is Woodard. Uh, Al- Alf- Alfre? Alfre Woodard. Mm-hmm. Um, Alfre Woodard, an Oscar nominee herself and multiple, multiple Emmy Award winner was Frake's self-proclaimed godmother. Quote, The first time we got through the script, I think everyone's first words were Alfre Woodard. A challenge for Frakes and Berman, though, was ultimately solved in the casting of South African-born actress Alex Krieg as the Borg Queen. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. She rocks. Yeah. Both Frakes and uh, the more Braga writing duo would later recall a sense of uneasy sexiness in Krieg's portrayal of the queen, aided by the application of a wet sheen to her skin by the makeup department. Other guest players were added to the resurrection call sheets as they were added to the script, including Trek vets uh, Dwight Schultz as Barclay, Ethan Phillips as a holographic maitre d', and Robert Picardo as the EMH of the Enterprise E. Um... Phillips' role went uncredited, a request made by the actor to confuse fans who may or may not recognize him from his role as Neelix. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want anyone to protest the film like me. <laughs> I would protest the film. But like, keep pedos out of our Star Trek film. Yeah. No, we love, uh, as an actor, we love Ethan Phillips. Ethan Phillips rocks, yeah. He rocks so hard. Neelix, however, should be brought to justice. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, if you find the fictional character of Neelix, uh, fucking set him on fire. Not <laughs> Ethan Phillips, though. He's a good man and a fun actor. Mm-hmm. I assume he's a good man. I hope he's a good man. Other cast additions included uh, Patty Asuke's final appearance as Nurse Agawa, having first appeared in TNG's fourth season. Yeah, uh, she actually has less screen time in this than in Generations. Wild. Uh, Don Stark was cast as Nikki the Nose, uh, most memorable for his role as Bob Pinciotti in that 70s show. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also in DS9's second season uh, as Ashrock the Uridian. Uh, Jack Shearer appears as Admiral Hayes, later reprising the role in Voyager in a couple uh, things. And uh, we also got Eric Steinberg, who played Paul Porter. I don't know who that is. He was the um, uh, the guy in engineering who uh, first got assimilated. Fair, fair, fair. Uh, Brandon Braga is clearly visible mm-hmm. as an extra in the holodeck nightclub as the Borg enter the scene, though writing partner Moore's appearance was never shot. Despite 16 hours of waiting with his then-wife Ruby... <laughs> An anniversary present. And uh, and uh, the stunt coordinator was the guy that Picard patted down. Interesting. Yeah, that the guy who's like, why are you breaking my balls? Or something like, yeah, that was the, that, that dude with the mustache was uh, the stunt coordinator. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Uh, rumors persist that Nichelle Nichols, uh, who played Uhura, and Kelsey Grammer, uh, who was the captain of the USS Bozeman in uh, T- um, TNG's Cause and Effect. And in Lower Decks? Oh, that's true, yeah. Uh, yeah. Have uncredited voice cameos, although these claims are unsubstantiated. But mm. I like to believe. Yeah. I want to believe. Production on Star Trek Resurrection began on my eighth birthday. Yeah. April 8th, 1996. But within a month, a new title had been chosen. Mere weeks prior, 20th Century Fox had announced the title of its fourth installment of the Alien film franchise, Alien Resurrection. And I'm a big fan of Alien Resurrection. You've gone on record. I am not. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 a lot of people don't like it. I'm a fan. I feel that way about uh, Alien Cubed. Yeah, Alien 3 is good, too. I like all the Alien Excuse movies. Excuse me? Alien Cubed. Thank you. I just said it correctly. And you tried... <laughs> come on. Come on, dog. Don't, don't blame me like that, that, dog. that uh, like, don't, don't blame me like that. A lot of people say it's not good, but... Um, but I think it's interesting, though. It has an interesting premise. You know, you're trapped on a prison planet. It, it does have a very interesting premise. I don't think it's that well executed, and I hate yeah. the ending. Yeah, the ending pretty sucks. But then I, I, sucks, I think so a lot of people hate it also because the originally they were talking that it was going to be an all-out um, alien invasion of Earth. That would have been kind of interesting. And so, it was, and so they had to scale it back, you know, obviously due to um, budgetary. budgetary restraints and everything else. And... Uh, 
God, it'd be so cool if they got Ridley Scott back and or, mm-hmm. or James Cameron to do that. Yeah. Because that would have fucked hard. It would have fucked hard. Fucked but I, st- I, st- I still like them. I still, I'd like all the Alien movies, really. Interesting. Oh, well, we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> A new number of titles were proposed for the film, including Star Trek Destinies, Star Trek Future Generations. Yeah, yeah that's, that one sucks. Yeah, that sucks. And... Probably the worst one, Star Trek Regenerations. Ugh. Right? Yeah, I, I feel like if they went with the future generations part, it's like kind of how like they do like all those fucking um, Spider-Man movies where they have to have like home oh, used right. in some capacity. I, I don't get that. Me, either, me either. I, don't, I haven't watched any of them, so maybe it explains in the films. Me, I, I haven't watched them either, but I'm always like, but it's like, the, like they're really stressing like how to use home in it and it doesn't make any sense like, also, like no way home also um they have all those superhero films with like a big group of superheroes and they they have to keep on using the word avengers in the title mm-hmm. that's fucking dumb as shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why do we why are they keep calling them the avengers i don't get yeah, that come on, that doesn't make no it's sense. not the it's not the uh remake of the british series yeah, that call, start call, with with uma thurman yeah, and, yeah exactly <laughs> call, call it what it is Big group of Marvel superheroes, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big group of guys that all talk like Joe Apat that uh whatever his name is, Josh Whedon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the other working titles that were used were Star Trek Borg and Star Trek Generations 2. <laughs> Can you imagine if it was called Borg? No, like no person familiar with Star Trek would have any idea what that title means. Yeah, no one would have seen it. They would have been like, that sounds weird. Yeah, it would, like, you know how um, uh, Lily says, like, Borg, that sounds Swedish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> were, that's, that's exactly probably... That sounds like an Ikea end table. Yeah, that's exactly what other people would have thought. Like, Star Trek Borg, oh, that must be the Swedish version of, uh, mm. of uh, Star Trek. So, minor details in the script, even as shooting was underway, continued to evolve. Early drafts were vague regarding the fate of the Defiant, DS9's resident warship. Having read the script, uh, DS9 producer Iris Stephen Bear's only note was an objection to the apparent destruction of the Defiant. Thank you, Iris Stephen Bear. Yeah. Uh, the writers added to the clarification, a drift was salvageable, and no mention of the ship's near annihilation was made in the TV series. Minor details in the script's pages included the ill-fated Enterprise crew member Ensign Lynch, named after a friend of writer Brandon Braga, <laughs> but though uh, by many named for internet critic, uh, oh, oh, sorry, but thought by many to be named for internet critic Timothy W. Lynch, who reviewed every episode of TNG and DS9. It is interesting, like, thinking about that, like, uh, you know that the none of the crew of DS9 comments on the damage done to Defiant, and I'm just real. I just realized that Worf never speaks about his experiences in the films to any Ever. of the D- no. <laughs> in, in any of the DS9 and, episodes. And I, don't, I don't think it's this is none of the happenings in any of the TNG films are ever mentioned in no in DS9 never. And it's just like, and I feel at some of the point there has to be some crossover with the Dominion War at some point with like. And yeah, it, it feels so weird. Yeah, like DS9, especially for having, you know, uh, Ronald D. Moore and Braga writing for it mm-hmm. in the later seasons as well. Like, it feels weird that there is basically no crossover yeah. whatsoever between DS9 and the TNG films, <laughs> even though there's a lot of crossover between Voyager and the TNG films even though that doesn't make much sense. Yeah, and they're like, hey, Worf, what'd you get up to this weekend? 
I went back in time to 20 to 2063 yeah. and then you know, uh, you know Zephram Cochran I met him yeah <laughs> made sure that shit happened you know what I'm saying right. yeah and, uh, killed a bunch of Borg um, yeah uh, we went oh the Borg have a queen did you know they have a queen <laughs> no one knew they have a queen yeah, and then yeah we came back to uh, current day and uh, yeah now I'm back here and uh, yeah uh, <laughs> no mention of this at all uh, Picard uh, wanted to commit suicide for a minute I don't know and then, like, in the other film, like, what Nemesis starts off with the wedding, isn't it? Yes. And, like, uh, so, yeah, that's, like, and is this, is that before, is that after Dax is dead? Mm-hmm. So, it's, like, yeah, yeah. and so, like, <laughs> they're, they like, they invite him to the wedding. They never invited, he didn't invite anyone from TNG to his wedding. Interesting. And because, yeah, his, his wedding was completely done without anyone from TNG coming. That's true. That's super weird because, like, he's good friends with, like, all those people and, like, yeah. in all the TNG films. Because his wedding was in, it, it, very small. Like, Martok, Martok was there and just the people from DS9. Yeah, and it would have made sense if it was just, like, you know, everybody gets, like, one person or something like that. And so yeah. you get Martok because uh, Worf chooses him, and then you get Martok because Jedzia chooses him, so it's really just one person. <laughs> yeah. Everyone fucking loves Martok. But, yeah, like, um, it was it was just funny. But, yeah, but they invite him to uh, their wedding. To, uh, and he just, like, looks miserable. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess, like, you had a whole thing where you got married and your wife died, and we never really, like commented on that <laughs> that's pretty cool though right yeah yeah uh so yeah that sucks that jedzia dax was not in any of the tng films let's be honest that really sucks yeah and and, and Worf never brings her up yeah that really fucking sucks <laughs> that really sucks man yeah like, he's it, like they she, never and they, there's no scenes of them asking how his wife is dude that's <laughs> yeah. yeah even though he goes through like a deep personal tragedy before <laughs> star trek nemesis that it is never mentioned that he like, he's a and, widower. And, and he, and he looks like he's going to kill himself at their wedding. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's supposed to be uh, because, like, uh, you know, he at one point was romantically linked with Deanna. I think that's why he's depressed. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah. yeah. But, 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 but I dated briefly. But, but I think that's why his depression. But I think it's more like him, the fact that his wife is dead. And, yeah. now, and now soon, so soon afterwards, he's, like, being forced to go to someone else's wedding. Yeah, that fucking <laughs> sucks. So, um... Here's here's the queer element of our podcast. We're a queer Ooh. podcast. Ever half yeah. queer. We we promised. Uh, rumors circulated during production, even reported by some LGBTQ publications, that another ill-fated Enterprise crewman, Neil McDonough's Lieutenant Hawk, was gay. Mm-hmm. No reference is made in the finished film to this fact. The producers have denied the rumors. <laughs> Regarding the film's emotional battle played out between Picard and Lily, Brandon Braga recalled, quote, I'd have to say that scene was nailed and perfect only about a week before it was filmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is a really good, powerful scene until he smashes the glass case and it, it's funny. Yeah, it's, I I laughed out loud. Yeah. It's, it's a very funny scene. Also, Lieutenant... Like, no! Lieutenant Hawk has, like, four lines in this film. What does it matter if he's gay? Yeah. It really doesn't matter. And that's the thing is like, I hate it when they like just make someone gay in a movie and they don't tell you like anyone is straight in the movie. 
Because yeah. that just assumes that, like, straight is, quote-unquote, normal. Yeah. And everyone here is normal. Except for that guy. We got the gay one, everybody. Wow, they really Dumbledore'd him before Dumbledoring was a thing. They really did Dumbledore him. They, yeah. they double Dumble, they double Dumbledore'd him. Double Dumbledore him. Double Dumbledore him. Yeah, I, I hear he got double double Dumbledore'd so uh, they, they in, showed, his, in his they, spare time. They his... showed him the door and uh, gave him the double Dumbledore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they took a couple other people from engineering and got double double doors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like, "Damn, you dumb thick! We got a dumb double 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 door door door." Okay, that's all I got. Um, uh, location shooting dominated the early schedule for the Star Trek First Contract production team. First up were scenes set in Bozeman, Montana, shot in the Titan Missile Museum outside Tucson, Arizona for a duration of just four days. Mm. The production then moved to Los Angeles National Forest in San Gabriel Mountains, not far from L.A. Two weeks of nighttime shooting followed with a large village constructed by Herman Zimmerman's art department to represent exterior Bozeman. Minor details in the sets including the 52-star American flag referencing an early TNG episode, The Royale. A full-size section of the Vulcan lander was brought to this location for the film's finale. The film then moved to Los Angeles Union Station Art Deco Restaurant, where the Dixon Hill Hollow novel sequence played out, including over 120 extras in period costumes and two Bork drones. That's where they spent all the money on this fucking film. Yeah, it, it is funny. Like it was such a, a visually rich scene. It was, and uh, and it was only in it for a very short period of time. Yeah, it, which is really strange because I feel like they spent they like doubled the fucking money on that scene because they started with the shot like they double doored it. They they double they gave them the double double because <laughs> they, they start with like the exterior or the, like the the entryway for the restaurant, mm-hmm. and they could have just gone with that and maybe yeah. had you know. Uh, 20, 30 extras or whatever, and that'd be fine. But then they're like, no, dancing. And then they're like, well, we need like a hundred more extras yeah. for the day to do that. It that's was gonna so cost like, massive. Yeah, that's going to cost us like $80,000. Fucking write the check. Like, all right, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and that scene is all of maybe what, three or four minutes. Yeah, and like the, the fact that there's a ton of people there is like inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Really. Except like they have to like they blend hide in. in the crowd. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I don't know. But, yeah, it would have been fun to have them utilize it more. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, why couldn't he have programmed all the um, all of the uh, the dancers to then suddenly, like, treat the Borg as a threat and attack them? That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. That would have been that, that would have been an interesting thing. Like, suddenly, like, <laughs> that would also have been a very weird scene, just seeing, oh. like, a bunch of people in, like, Oh, 19, yeah, just a bunch like, of boppers just, like, ripping the arms <laughs> off the yeah. of Borg and just beating their faces in with and it. And they, they all turn and face the Borg simultaneously and just, like, mindlessly go after the, after the Borg and fight yeah. them. These turkeys are squares! <laughs> yeah. Get them, kids! Like, <laughs> yeah, that would have been sick. That, that would have been awesome. Yeah. Then that would have like also like like uh made ha- like been a good use of the hollow deck as a we- as a um offensive poss- as offensive uh tool. Yeah, I'd like that. Yeah. So um production finally moved to Paramount Picture Studios in Hollywood on May 3rd for a half day of shooting on the three-story Enterprise E engine room set. Cameras were then moved to from stage 14 to 15 where scenes were shot on the bridge, observation lounge and ready room sets. Freaks recalls, quote, It was as if we had gone back in time. 
It was the same sort of fantastic, uh, cynical, fearless, take no prisoners, abuse your fellow cast members that kept us together all these years. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. Uh, The next two months were dubbed by um, the crew, quote, Borg Hell, with scenes shot on stages 14, 15, and 8 that included heavy makeup, Borg extras, stunts, pyrotechnics, and one large deflector dish. Uh, likely the film's most labor-intensive sequence to pull off was the battle on the Enterprise hull on the film's largest set. The deflector dish itself, while massive, was shot at angles intended to exaggerate its size. Uh, the manual input computers were labeled AE-35, a subtle reference to 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm. Uh, the sequence also required uh, Patrick Stewart, Michael Dorn, and Neil McDaw as Hawk to wear restrictive environmental suits that incorporated internal lighting and cooling systems. With the addition of flying rigs and complex stunts, tempers on the set were pushed, as was Patrick Stewart's endurance. The actor suffered breathing problems in his spacesuit, halting production for an entire day, which is maybe the reason he actually seems labored breathing while he's in the spacesuit. It makes sense. I thought it's because he's old. (laughs) Yeah. Problems also arose in the realism of the sequence, with smoke rising from the set, then quickly falling, contrary to physics of real life in Zero-G. Mm-hmm. This required freaks to shoot around the smoke or shoot uh, take short enough to prevent the falling smoke from being seen. Writers Moore and Braga agreed that, had the film been produced only a few years later, the entire sequence was likely to have been less complicated if shot with computer-generated sets. Mm. I guess so. I mean, uh, it, look, it, 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 it looked great. It looked great, it looked and great. I, I think a CGI set would have looked like dog shit. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to fucking... Because they would have been going in with, like, pre-Attack of the Clones technology. Mm-hmm. And Attack of the Clones is dated. It, it, like, it, it, like, yeah, Attack of the Clones looks ugly as sin. Mm-hmm. And um, I hate it, because it definitely... And but that and it's funny, because, like, like you know, we watched, like, the trailers, that Quantumanium movie. Oh, yeah. The and that movie looks exactly the same as Attack of the Clones. Yeah, it doesn't look that much Because, different. like, the, the CGI in that looks like dog shit, where it just looks like a bunch of people in front of green screens. And the thing is, like, they, they just get, like, coloring so wrong. Like, yeah. And fucking, like, that's one thing that Zack Snyder has done to fucking ruin film, in my opinion, is, like, the the high-contrast, high-grit color palette of films. Like, mm. I fucking hate it. It doesn't look natural. I love it when films, like, actually look like something you see. Mm-hmm. You know, which is why, like, you know, Avatar 2 is so fucking great in the same way that, like, Barry Lyndon is great. Because mm-hmm. that fucking entire film is lit by goddamn candles. Yeah. And so it looks real, even if it's, like, weird. Yeah. It's Stanley all real. Kubrick was psych- psych- psychotic. He, he was psychotically genius. <laughs> yeah. Like, that, and he's just like, no, only candles. Yeah. Uh, Which fair we stand a queen king only, only, only candles.com baby <laughs> uh yeah um so despite the complications Star Trek First Contact wrapped production on the 2nd of July 1996 just 2 days over schedule wow that's great yeah why uh with the flashback that opened the film fittingly the sequence requires uh Patrick Stewart to don the Starfleet uniform he had worn for at least five of the seven seasons on Star Trek The Next Generation. According to Ronald B. Moore, everyone involved with the film knew it was going to be a big fucking hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about post-production. Uh, visual effects. As described by visual effects supervisor John Knoll, 
Time allotted for post-production visual effects and model building uh, resulted in a brutal effort. Not only did Industrial Light and Magic's team have to construct the Enterprise-E, large models representing the Borg Sphere, the new Borg Cube, and uh, the Phoenix were also required. Brand new stuff, whereas they recycled a lot of stuff from the previous films. Even more so than the previous film, uh, the first contact visual effects teams also utilized computer-generated imagery, lending itself to sequences that required large numbers of starships. To stand up to the Borg Cube alongside the new Enterprise and the old Defiant, ILM art director Alex Yeager designed 16 new Starfleet vessels, four of them rendered digitally and appearing in the massive opening battle sequence. Um, uh, yeah. Other computer-generated vessels included uh, the John Eves Design Enterprise Escape Pods and the Vulcan Lander constructed by the Vision Art Company. Mm. At that time, First Contact included more complex visual effect shots than any Star Trek film before. Low-tech methods, however, were still utilized. Close-up shots of LaForge's new ocular implants were achieved through the use of a sprocket-shaped shower handle matted against black <laughs> contact lenses. And I love that for him, too, because he had been um, petitioning to have ocular implants for a long time. Yeah, because apparently the fucking visor was super cumbersome and mm-hmm. painful, even. And it helps him act. Yeah. And and, and it's funny because, like, I, you know, you remark, like, he looks, he actually looks extremely young in this. He does. He looks younger than he did in the series because, like, the, the visor somehow made him somehow aged him well it, it aged him and i think i mean well i mean you know like you know difficulty ages people and yeah. adversity ages people and like having to wear something super uncomfortable on your face for your job must have sucked and like yeah made him unhappy you know yeah. you know how fucking like every president four years after they're out of office or eight years it looks like they've aged like 20 or 30 years every yeah. time and mm-hmm. it's because all they deal with is fucking conflict and like mm-hmm. pain and shit like that, and they know all they know all the secrets of the United States. They know how the sausage is made. They in know the CIA. How the sausage is made, yeah. But yeah, like I really love that for him because yeah, he does. He comes off in this film ec- very excellent. Like his acting. Oh yeah, he rocks. Superb. I like, fucking love and, it, and, yeah, yeah. and a lot of it is I because you can see his eyes and he's allowed to emote with his eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah, he's just and he's just a regular old Jordan in this film. He, like everything he does is super true to his character. He's, a, he's yeah, he's very yeah. nerdy. Yeah, he's just an engineering nerd who wants to like nerd out about engineering. That's it. That's his thing. And there is an, yeah, there's an episode where he does mention like one of the things he wishes he could do is like you know take a ride with Zephram Cochran and he gets yeah. to do it. And so and and so that's great for him. He uh, he definitely uh, has like he he definitely wins in the movie most of all. I think. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, like I mean. Yeah, I feel like Data gets to like experience something so new and profound. Yeah, he, he wins like in a big coming. way. Yeah, yeah, he gets to come for the yeah, first time. Yeah, and Jordy still hasn't experienced coming yet. I mean, he has tried Barclays holodeck programs. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He is he's come from the bottom of his soul. <laughs> he didn't want to, but he did. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, once you turn the safety protocols off, like what Barclays program does to your prostate is <laughs> what some would consider consider inhumane but you're really talking it up but and really all it is is a um uh a toilet cleaner on the end of a drill (laughs) (laughs) that's all they did (laughs) yeah yeah man but it's like a really good nikita drill (laughs) it's it's, it's actually like a a coring tool for like putting in uh fucking fence posts and shit (laughs) dog 
<laughs> it's a just, post digger, man. Just Deanna were just using that drill thing on his ass all night. <laughs> <laughs> Safety protocols off. <laughs> Safety protocols eliminated. Eliminated. Delete them all. <laughs> Safety subroutine folder eliminate. <laughs> um. Let's talk about the music. Music rocks. Music's so fucking good. Um, Jerry Goldsmith, who composed the motion picture and uh, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, returned to score the first contact in the remaining two TNG films after it. Because of his hectic schedule, Goldsmith shared much of the work with his son, Joel Goldsmith. Uh, As a result, much of the music for First Contact does not appear on the commercial soundtrack, which is very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Among the two Goldsmith's work, this a theme established in The Final Frontier, referred to as, quote, a busy man theme, was used throughout First Contact, likely as a theme for Picard. Hmm. It can be heard just after the opening fanfare at the beginning of the film. It can also be heard only briefly in Insurrection, but is used quite heavily in Nemesis. Also repeated in First Contact was the Klingon theme originally introduced in the motion picture and used in this film to represent Worf. As with all Star Trek films scored by Goldsmith, the theme from the motion picture was used in the end credits, and the opening fanfare from uh, theme from Star Trek was used to segue into the opening and closing themes. Mm-hmm. The opera that Picard listens to in his ready room is Berlois Les Troyens, if anyone cares. <laughs> yeah, they have a scene where that where like um, Riker gets it wrong, mm-hmm. and then like he's like, "No, Berlois." Uh, so this is the first and only Star Trek film up until the Kelvin films to have rock and roll music in a soundtrack. Although Star mm-hmm. Trek four, yeah, modern day music. Yeah. Although Star Trek four, uh, did feature some fusion jazz by the yellow jackets as well as a punk song by the guy on the bus. It's true. Uh, and Star Trek into darkness and beyond all have a beastie boys song that you can consider hip hop or rock really. Yeah. You know, Beastie Boys cross some genres. <laughs> uh, in their joint audio commentary of the special edition DVD, Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga uh, credited Peter Lawrenson with the selection of Steppenwolf's Magic Carpet Ride and not, quote, some cheap cover. They criticized, however, the choice of Roy Orbison's Ooby Doobie as being, quote, too goofy. Which was, I agree. I didn't like that at the end. Yeah, I mean, it was like just like to show that them torturing the Vulcans, <laughs> just being like, right, like, hey, guess what? We're a bunch of dumbass goobers. Here's a yeah. dumbass fucking Ooby Dooby song. Oh, you like logic? Let's listen to rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> the most logical thing on the planet Earth. It could have used a scene where a close-up of, like, uh, of, I think his name is Sorak, or so- Solar, yeah. uh, just reaching for a phaser on his side. <laughs> just being putting, like, putting in his mouth. <laughs> Oh, give it, give it a knowing. We should have never come here. Just <laughs> shooting a glance at the Vulcan across him, and they just like execute everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about some promotion and merchandising. Mm. Merchandising, merchandising. The uh, teaser trailer for First Contact premiered with Paramount Movies in early summer '96. As much of the film had yet to be shot, with the uh, when the advertisements were assembled, footage from Star Trek Generations. And episodes of TNG and DS9 were included. Intercut with sequences from the film, uh, the reused footage included snippets from Beth of, Best of Both Worlds and Emissary. Mm. Uh, so I'm guessing it was like the, the battles from Emissary. And shit. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the trailer utilized score from the best of both worlds, Generations and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Most notably, however, from Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, which is weird. Both the teaser and theatrical trailers included footage unique only to them, with some visual effects created specifically for the trailer. Mm. Unique shots included the USS Voyager firing phasers at a differently designed Borg cube and an alternate version of Picard's soon-to-be infamous speech, The Line Must Be Drawn Here, in the teaser, and cut takes of various Borg drones in the theatrical trailer. Uh, As well as with the previous film and TNG, Playmates Toys released a line of action figures and accessories in conjunction with the premiere of the film. Among the toys was a model of the Enterprise-E, apparently based upon early sketches of the ship and not the finalized version, featuring several key structural differences from the finalized design. Out of scale from their previous lines, uh, the larger first contact action figures were made in the likeness of the entire Enterprise-E crew, Lily, except from Cochrane, Bacard in an environmental suit, and a Borg drone, also based on production drawings. In recent years, Art Asylum has released a detailed action figure in the likeness of Captain Picard from First Contact, complete with the skull of the Borg Queen, which is fucking sick. <laughs> which it very keeps in with his character in this because yeah, he just he, he likes just his se- revenge and shit. That just seems like yeah, it's like he would be drinking like uh, excuse me, Ducat skull. Yeah, Ducat skull. I mean, yeah, but that's the thing that that was for like alternate universe fascist. Yeah, it's Picard, like, yeah, like, this implies, like, he's, like, drinking, drinking out of the Borg Queen skull or something, is this not, keeping it for a trophy. Is this not the alternate universe fascist Picard? I mean, I, I have to say this is. That's like, an interesting idea. How about, how about we, let's, let's maybe view the rest of the TNG films through the view that perhaps this is fascist Picard. I believe it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's. It, it would fit. It would be appropriate. And plus the fact that, like, yeah, season two of Picard has him wanting to execute the Borg Queen mm. uh, in, a, in a public show trial. And and really, like, how is any he, and he's like, you know, acts like this is somehow beneath him and just sound uh, like a, a turn for the worst for him, like the, the most ultimate evil. But how is it any different than him, his character in First Contact? Yeah, it's exactly. Just angry at everything. Yeah. I mean, this is basically like Star Trek First Contact is Picard in here is basically Kirk in the undiscovered country. Mm -hmm. It's just a guy with like a lot of fucking feelings about something that happened to him a long time ago. And he needs his revenge against a thing Mm -hmm. like a monolith of a culture or something. And he has to learn that that's going to do nothing for him to get it. Yeah. He learned some things along the way. Mm-hmm. Also, there's Klingons. <laughs> and also, there's a, a Klingon. A, yeah, a Klingon. Okay, you're right. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, Marvel Comics also released a comic adaptation of the movie and a sequel comic book that crossed with the X-Men crew called Second Contact. Uh, yeah, right? I That one, I'm like, that doesn't line up with timelines. or anything. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this later had a sequel novel by... Michael Jan Friedman called Planet X. So the comic book had a novel sequel. The sequel comic book had a sequel to that called Planet X about maybe a planet of X-Men. Yeah, that's, and that's how you got to finish the trilogy. The the first contact trilogy. The first contact X-Men trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> cool. 
Oh, and that's why he appears as as a Professor Xavier. Oh, that makes sense now. They're yeah. the same person. Same person. Let's talk about box office performance. Um, so we had a budget of $45 million on this film. What do you think... Um, what do you think it made on its first weekend? How much was the budget? Forty-five million. I want to say one hundred twenty-five. On its first weekend? Yeah. No. How much? Uh, it made thirty million dollars. Ooh. No, it's actually good. Yeah. Like most most films do not make back their budget on the yeah. first weekend. Like Avatar two didn't make back their budget until like the third week. Oh yeah. But it was super fucking expensive. So. Mm-hmm. Um. So it uh, made about uh, almost $31 million on its first weekend and eventually went on to make $146 million in the U.S. Mm. Uh, oh, no, sorry, worldwide. Um, it's, uh, yeah. By comparison, Generations, with a budget of $35 million, uh, opened with $23 million, but only grossed $118 million wow that's that's crazy so pretty much almost like a quarter of everyone that saw the movie yeah. <laughs> it's like like saw it in like that first weekend and then then slowly teetered teetered off completely after that right. that's i mean so, a lot of most movies make like the like 90 percent of their box office receipts within the first like month mm-hmm. like avatar 2 is such an exceptionally different film and weird mm-hmm. we love that yeah so, uh, it made First Contact the highest grossing Star Trek film ever, surpassing uh, or sorry, 1986's The Voyage Home, though it remained the second most profitable one after Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, because Khan's budget was so fucking low, uh, until the release of 2009's Star Trek and its two sequels, which blew it out of the fucking water. Mm. Like those, I think each of those made like around $400 million or something. Mm. <clears throat> so... Uh, uh, this film, however, was considered by most to not only be a financial success, but a critical one as well, beating out both The Wrath of Khan and The Voyage Home, respectfully, in this regard. As of 2020, uh, only to be surpassed by 2009 Star Trek by the slimmest of margins mm. when coming to aggregate scores. Um, what do you think this guy has on Rotten Tomatoes? 75%. 92. Wow. Critic 92, which is great. That's uh, fascinating. Uh, what do you think it has for audience score? 75. 94. Damn. Everyone loves this film. Yeah. You 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 probably like this film less than most people. Which I think cool. I do, yeah. yeah that's just, that's just <laughs> I think I like it about as much as like most people like this film. Yeah. I, I think it's great. Me, I'm like, eh. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's no voyage home, you know? <laughs> it's not two gay men in a park needing some whales. I love that. Yeah, me too. It's fucking fun. So I read. <laughs> It's so stupid. Like it's uh, the thing about Voyage Home and this one too is like mm-hmm. both of them are immensely fun. Yeah, and like basically no other Star Trek film until the Kelvin Universe films are fun. And I gotta say, like even even though I don't like Into Darkness, I still think it's a fairly fun movie. Yeah, at least like there's a lot of good quips and stuff. Bones has a lot. Bones mm-hmm. and Scotty have great lines and that and shit. Plus, it has a message. Like it, it's hopeful. Yeah. And it's something that, like, you know, you feel good watching. Like, I don't know, like, watching, like, old man scream, yell at, yell at Borg. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's kind of depressing. I feel that. Yeah. I feel that. It, at the same time, it's fun. It tells a fun story. Yeah. And I mean, and, the, and the most love- emotional I felt during First Contact was when the, the Vulcans landed. 
Yeah. And there's that scene where Lily like kind of squeezes Ephraim's hand and yeah. and like and you know and you just feel like okay this is the most positive thing I've seen in this so so far. Yeah, totally. And like there were some things I think they could have done better. Like honestly, I mm-hmm. think the film's biggest mistake was agreeing to let Patrick Stewart go up into the Enterprise. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like he keeps sending people wrong. Like, why do you keep letting this man make decisions? Like, he's the no, he's he makes like the, the worst decisions for Picard. Yeah, he's the he's like one of the main creative forces mm-hmm. behind behind the series. Like he he, <laughs> you know, he is the guy in the bar who is stabbing Picard through the heart. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like just like just like give him like a busy box of some kind. Like mm-hmm. make him think he's making decisions. Like yeah, or just like you know, you can just be like, hey, no, like. Here's the deal. We'll pay you a ton of fucking money to play this character again. But it comes with the cost of you playing this character for us. Yes. You're not playing it for yourself, old man. Mm-hmm. You're an actor. Yeah. Like you're not, this isn't a fucking biography film. Mm-hmm. It's not a biopic about Patrick. You're not a, not a goddamn spaceship captain, old man. Yeah. Fucking get in the spacesuit and act. <laughs> All right, so uh, we got some notes here. Uh, the film opened on the same day that Mark Leonard, the actor best known for portraying Sarek, died at the age of 72. Mm, fascinating. Uh, despite the use of the uniforms in the previous film, Star Trek Generations, this is the only movie starring a Next Generation cast where uh, the Star Trek Next Generation and early Star Trek DS9 com badge is seen, as visible on Picard's uniform in the flashback from Best of Both Worlds in the opening of the film. The reference that Data makes about using his fully functional sexual organs uh, was from The Naked Now. Uh, This would also seem to indicate Data and his fourth season girlfriend, uh, Jenna DeSora, were never sexually intimate during the course of their relationship. Mm -hmm. Which sucks, because she was really cute. I guess she just just knew he couldn't fuck. He could fuck. I mean, she knew she could fuck. He could fuck, but... Yeah. No, he couldn't. Why? If he could fuck, everyone would be fucking him. He's a robot. He that fucked is... Tasha. Yeah, once. Yeah? She never fucked him again. That's because, like, well, that's because she was under the influence of polywater. Like, it's yeah. not the. It's not... Yeah, she only fucked him because she was fucked up. She wouldn't have fucked him regular. Yeah. Everyone on the ship knows he can fuck, but no one wants to fuck him. Why do you think that is, Pat? Because he's an android and probably seem to a uh, bridge too far. I don't know. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Women don't like fucking machines. <laughs> yeah, Pat. Tell me about that. Tell yeah. me how women don't love fucking machines. I'm just saying, like, I what 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 reality do you live in, brother? I I would have liked it if him and his like if his girlfriend banged because it, it was sad because she was all about him. I I would I would have loved it if Data was a canonically good fuck. But I can make enough inferences to tell you the opposite is true. Mm. Like fucking, come on, man. <laughs> he, he only fucks twice. And like one of them is like a Borg queen who's like raping him, right? Well, also you have to imagine like the Borg queen since they do a, um, um, assimilate all these people, different people and, and experience all their individual experiences. You have to imagine that she is... Wait, I'm sorry. Was Data Polywater intoxicated? Yeah, he was. Okay, good. Yeah, which okay, doesn't make which yeah, it doesn't which, make sense. Which didn't it? make sense why he was affected by Polywater. No, it really doesn't. Like, 
it, but except for the surface of the story, because usually, typically, he's immune to all sort of like biological influences, mm-hmm. and somehow the polywater was able to affect. That's why, like, when he's when Tasha's pulling him into the bedroom, he like does a little like goofy face, like Ooh, I'm gonna bang. I'm gonna use my programming for sex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I imagine he's good, and you know, I imagine his dick like moves, like twirls, probably like exfl- inflates <laughs> as a dog knot. <laughs> so white women see like why is yeah. that familiar oh damn so, it looks so foreign but so familiar oh shit he got a dog knot <laughs> you gotta <laughs> time to get naughty yeah um, so uh, first contact references and even explicitly quotes Moby Dick despite the story parallels the producers hesita- hesitated using it as Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan was also heavy in Moby Dick references. Mm-hmm. Two years after First Contact premiered, Patrick Stewart played Captain Ahab in a 1998 TV miniseries. That I think I talked about. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that cover. I've never watched it though. I should check that out. Do you have it on your Plex account? Uh, I can put it on there, but I don't want to. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's some dumbass bullshit. Who wants? Who wants? Who wants? Who wants to? You want to watch that? Yeah, why not? I have reasons. I mean. Because you could just watch Master and Commander again. True. Master and Commander yeah. fucks. It's, it's so a, fucking good, dude. Oh, my God. It's like Star Trek on the water, man. <laughs> Plus, like, the book on the real-life account that Moby Dick is based on is very fascinating. It's called, like, uh, The Heart of the Sea. Mm. And uh, it's 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 horrifying. Like, the real story is just, like, like uh, just a bunch of guys cannibalizing each other mm. uh, on a boat after their after a sperm whale. Um uh, it sets them adrift on on us on lifeboats, and and then like they're too afraid to go to an island for help because they think it's can there's cannibals there, and so they just end up cannibalizing each other. Cool. Yeah. I should have caught that whale and ate all its sperm. Yeah, they get that sweet sweet sperm. That's what sperm whales are for, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, jerking them off. Yeah, jerk off that horn that they have until. Uh, that's a, isn't that a narwhal? Oh, do they have a horn? Oh, maybe. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sperm whales don't have horns. I don't think. I mean, they're horny. Sure. Mm, and narwhals have the yeah. have the thing. They're the unicorns of the sea. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. uh, all right. Uh, early in the movie, Zephram Cochran points out the constellation Leo, uh, which is in Wolf 359. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, first contact marked the first time the phrase Star Trek was ever uttered in the franchise. Yeah. Uh, in the TNG finale, All Good Things, however, Q tells Picard... It's time to put an end to your trek through the stars. Yeah, which which doesn't which no one uses the word trek. So that's what I like <laughs> about it is because Q uses words and says things no one would say because he's yeah. like a super weird theater gay. But also, I think Q in a way also it makes sense for him saying it since he is omniscient and he is all knowing. Like he knows he's on a TV show, right? And he knows he's on a show called Star Trek. That's an oh my god. We're going to have to relook at all of the Q episodes <laughs> through the, the view the Q knows that he is being viewed in the past on television. Yes. Because that would blow some minds, dog. Yeah. I'm not high enough for that. You ever I, take I, mushrooms and watch Star Trek? Now, I am not high <laughs> enough for that, but let me tell you, I can get high. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just give you some time. Yeah. Uh, time and weed, brother. Time and weed. Yes, indeed. Uh, Picard misquotes Moby Dick when he quotes it in this movie. Oh, really? Yeah, apparently. There's a couple of words he gets wrong. Uh, when Picard announces to his crew his intention to break his orders and join the engagement, Data's response is, Captain, I believe I speak for everyone here, sir, when I say to hell with our orders. 
Um, similarly, in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, Spock's response to the Enterprise orders to return to space dock is, if I were human, I believe my response would be, go to hell. Mm-hmm. So they kind of ripped off a joke from that, which is interesting. Yeah. Which is which is why Data should have definitely died in this. Mm-hmm. It would have been a good good send off for him, and then also have like the parallels to Wrath of Khan, which they were already like just like just pretty much copy and pasted <laughs> almost. It, yeah. yeah, and and it's just like why not just put that in there? True. Uh, next we have uh, the program menu in the Hollow Suite depicts, uh, or the holodeck, rather, depicts various holodeck programs from previous episodes, including uh, Café des Artistes from Will Always Have Paris, uh, Charnock's Comedy Cabaret from The Outrageous O'Connor, The Big Goodbye from The Get- Big Goodbye Manhunt and Clues, the Dixon episodes, uh, Emerald Waiting Pool from Conundrum, and The Equestrian Adventure from Pen Pals, all mm. the episodes. Picard's line, report to my assimilation have or, sorry, reports of my assimilation have been greatly exaggerated is a paraphrasing of a famous quotation by Mark Quain. Mark Quain? Mark Twain. Yeah, Mark Quain. I'm starting to lose it, everybody. Uh, uh, concerning his premature obituary. Um, Picard had made a similar paraphrasing in TNG, The Samaritan Snare, where he said, any rumors of my brush with death are greatly exaggerated. Um... Riker calls the Defiant a tough little ship. In the DS9 third season episode Defiant, Thomas Riker calls it the exact same thing, which is a cool Easter egg. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the movie, a fucking uh, Worf goes, little. Little. Which is very funny. because He's heard that about his dicks so many times. It's not the size of the ship, it's the motion in the ocean. <laughs> it's not the size of the ships, I mean. The ships. I've got two. I definitely have two Klingon dicks. Um, One growing out of the other. It looks like a narwhal. So, according to uh, Enterprise episode Carbon Creek, though this uh, movie records the official first contact between Earth and Vulcan, mm. contact was actually made in 1957. That's a really good episode, too. I don't remember that one. It's um, where um, uh, T'Pol is talking about, uh, she reveals to um, uh, Archer and Trip. That um, that Vulcans had been visiting Earth for for many years, and hmm. um, a Vulcan observation ship uh, crash lands hmm. uh, uh, on Earth, and they have no choice but to um, go to the town because they're you know they need food and everything. So they end up um, while waiting for a rescue ship, they have to uh, work among humans, and so they hide. <laughs> so they. They hide their ears of uh, varying methods, like they like uh, to to and to Paul's grandmother is played by you know to Paul, mm, and um, and uh, and so yeah, it shows them uh, like uh, and oh yeah, that and that uh, episode reveals that uh, the Vulcans invented Velcro. Awesome. Because um, while while uh, living amongst the humans, like to Paul's uh, grandmother actually like grows affection and like sees like. You know these these primitive people actually. You know you still use money. So what she does is to help a uh, a young man go to school. She goes through her ship mm-hmm. and um and pick picks up like uh, a piece of Velcro that they use for whatever, and then just goes to a patent office and like shows it off. And, <laughs> and so and so so Vulcans invent Velcro, and then um I, I love in like series and shit when like time travel makes like. Rec- 
circular inventions where like well technically this isn't time travel yeah yeah it's just like uh just like them uh like at, at the time the vulcans uh advanced species like right, right, right. influencing another and and then like uh one vulcan which i'm not sure if they ever revisit mm-hmm. but one vulcan actually falls in love with a human woman and stays behind oh and to pull's grandmother lies and says he died in the crash and- Oh, interesting. That would be an interesting thing to bring back up in like modern Star Trek somewhere where like there's like an ancient line of half human, half Vulcan hybrids mm-hmm. that have lived on Earth since the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that'd be super cool. Yeah, like that that turns out, yeah, they've just been living in, in secret for a long time. And he, yeah, he obviously had to reveal to the human that he's a, an alien because obviously, like, she's going to figure it out. Got probably got green blood and green cum. So, love that. <laughs> Um, so based on averaging the differences of the star dates from Star Trek Deep Space Nine's Children of Time and Empoch Nar, uh, the initial events of this film should have occurred between Blaze of Glory and Empoch Nor. However, Cisco's mention of, quote, the recent Borg attack in the episode, uh, In Purgatory Shadow actually places first contact before that episode. Furthermore, based on the star dates, the initial events of the film would have taken um, between the events of Star Trek Voyager episodes Real Life and Displaced. It is unclear whether these events take place before, after, or contemporaneously with the events of Distant Origin, which was broadcast in the interim and does not feature a star date. Mm. Um, this is the only Star Trek movie to feature a female primary antagonist. Interesting. Yeah, right. Until... Oh, yeah, well, not, it's not going to be a movie, but season three of Picard, the man's so, plumber. So, no. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, in the ending credits, Zephram Cochran's name is misspelled as Cochran. <laughs> uh, instead of Cochrane. Um, no E at the end. Do you want a Cochran? Hell yeah. Uh, this film is the only appearance of De- Defi- uh, the Defiant outside of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That is not correct anymore. Not correct. Mm. It's the first Star Trek film to be rated PG-13. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the first Star Trek film since the motion picture to not reuse any footage from any previous film. (laughs) Which is like, that seems like it's like, you know, well, of course, but no, yeah, they just use everything over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even Generations had the same exploding exploding, uh, bird of prey. Oh, yeah, it did. Had to reuse that Klingon bird of prey for fucking 40 years, man. Yeah. Uh, all right, we'll close out on this guy. The new Starfleet uniforms, which were introduced in the film, would later be adopted into Star Trek DS9 episode Rapture and Onward. But the crew on Star Trek Voyager continued to use the old DS9 uniforms due to being stranded in the Delta Quadrant. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I guess last we're going to go with uh, all of its... Awards and honors. So it only won four awards. It was nominated for a bunch, including Best Makeup Academy Award, um, the NAACP Image Awards for Alfre Woodard. Woodard? No. Uh, Hugo, yeah, I mean, she did an excellent job did, in this movie. Uh, Hugo Awards for the screenplay, a Satellite Award for Outstanding Visual Effects. Uh, what they actually won, uh, BMI Film and TV Awards. The the Body Mass Index? Yes, correct. <laughs> some, some music thing. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith won for his score. 
that that tracks like that 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 song is genuinely good like i would listen to that just like in my car uh and then it got nominated for a bunch of saturn awards uh including best makeup best writer best music best special effects best director and best actor lost all those but it won the <laughs> who, who did nominate for best actor patrick stewart oh uh but the ones that won were for best supporting actor brent spiner best supporting actress alice Krieg, best costumes deborah everton hmm. yeah. yeah yeah it's interesting that, that they chose data yeah like i mean he had some moments but i wouldn't call it like a data eccentric movie Nah, it's, it's fine i mean yeah. data's he yeah. does have his i mean he does have some he's important to the plot but still yeah, I mean, and also, like, they do really tone down his um, emotion chip shit. They do, thankfully. Well, thankfully. he turns off his emotion chip for part of the film. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and when he does use it, it's not like him doing the Ro- Robin Williams impression. Yeah, but uh, I think that's about all we have for production cool. notes. All right, so uh, with that, Captain's Log, supplemental. Mm-hmm. Thanks for traveling with us, Soyagers. Uh, be well, travel safe. And uh, go do yourself a favor. Go watch Star Trek First Contact. Yeah, do it up. I highly recommend it. All right. Well, thanks for checking with us, soy boys, girls, and other Ridley Beans. Hang, Hang dong in shocker. Soy, 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 Damn, you frying chicken in there?